We are coming to our last installment on our Scripture Twisting series. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, series for me, just in studying it, putting it good through this thing. Uh, we have really been basing this off of the idea that the Bible is not a magical book. It's not filled with incantations. And as long as it's put out there somewhere, you know, these right words in this right order, somehow it does its magical whatever it does. But there's a meaning behind the, the text that we have to get at. And it's that meaning that is God's word. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody and they were explaining stuff to you and for whatever reason it wasn't registering, you didn't understand, and it's confusing and you're thinking, well, hang on, wait a minute, if that's true, then this and that, and it, it doesn't make sense to you. And so you ask for some clarity. Help me understand this. And they give you the clarity. And you go, oh, got it. Well, you got, well of course that makes I thought this, uh, no, this is, I got it. Yeah, it makes sense now. And now, if you ever had the opportunity to do what us timid, quiet sort of people do, like myself, when they explain it to you and you don't get it, you go, got it, yeah. And you walk away going, this is stupid, it's never going to work. And you don't understand. And you live your life with this misunderstanding, trying to make it work and it's not going to work. I wonder if sometimes we do that with God's word. We've heard because, you know, the, the God's word came out of his mouth and then it went around the grapevine, lots of preachers and authors. And, and by the time it gets to us, it's all misconstrued and twisted. And we're going, got it. And we're trying to make it work. And it's not working and we can't figure out why. And so we've been going over in this series, we want everyone to have a toolbox. If you notice in your bulletin, the uh, little toolbox with the rules listed on it, that's for you to keep that bookmark in your Bible to be reminded of the, of the rules. And the first rule we went over is that biblical example is not authoritative. Simply means that just because it happened to someone like this in the Bible, just because someone did this in the Bible, it doesn't mean you and I are supposed to work this way for us. Biblical examples are not authoritative. Second rule is the Bible best interprets itself. And basically what this rule means is that unless a doctrine summarizes all of what Scripture says about it, not just what one verse says, but all of what Scripture says about it, it cannot be considered biblical. A good question we said when we heard somebody preaching, they name a verse, and especially if it doesn't ring true to us or it's novel to us, good question to ask is, I wonder what else Scripture teaches about that. And that would hopefully lead us on in our study. Third rule that we went over is the Holy Spirit is necessary to proper interpretation. Doesn't mean that if you got the Holy Spirit, it's always gonna, you're always gonna nail it. But all this rule is really saying is if you are a believer, you, you have the Holy Spirit at that point. If you're leaning into Him, you're coming to the Bible, not with an agenda, not trying to prove my point, but God, what does this mean for me? The Spirit will enlighten us and teach us accordingly. The corollary there is that the Spirit will not give a meaning to a text that was not originally given. Fourth rule is, is interpret experience in light of Scripture, not the other way around. I had my tradition or I have this existential thing that happened to me and therefore that's going to color all of what scripture means. No, no, we take and we put the Bible on top and it's going to determine whether my experience is valid and to what degree it is. The fifth rule is interpret according to its historical context. And all we're saying with that is that the Bible was written to somebody else before it was written to us. And so we want to find out to somebody else the world they lived in. And we said this is the most technical rule uh, because it's not really listed in Scripture. We can't see it, so we have to do a little extra work on this one. A good study Bible or a commentary. I've listed some in your notes section of, of the notes in the bulletin. There are others that are very, very good, but those are some, just some basic ones that I listed. And then the sixth rule is never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse 
Always read the paragraph or the literary unit. Remember, you, you find the verse, then you go north until you find that little superscript, and it gives you the, the literary unit. You want to read that and understand. Now, I'm not saying you can't, can't use the Bible verse at the bottom of your letter one day or you, that kind of thing. You can't quote a Bible verse. Yeah, absolutely. We just want to make sure that the meaning we're, we're attributing to that verse is not something separate than, from the context it was found in. That's exactly what God meant. Now, you need to know, we could, this was an interesting week because we could go on and on and on with this series for multiple more weeks because there are special rules for interpreting proverbial literature and the Psalms and, and, and interpreting the prophetic literature and the apocalyptic literature, you know, Revelation, some of Daniel and Zechariah and parables and epistolatories and there's, there's a ton of different rules. But I think if we get these six down, they will serve us well. Where we want to go this morning is we want to touch on two issues. Um, one special part of the Bible that really hangs Christians is probably the most difficult. And then a principle for taking all these rules and allowing God's Word to transform us from the inside out. Now, first, let me give you an example on this one. Youth group I grew up in. I grew up in youth group, it was in the 70s, okay? And my church was only about 70 people, and our youth group was like 12. Uh, and so what we did, we didn't, could never afford a youth pastor, a full-time guy. And so what we did is the, the students, the kids, we often spoke ourselves. And so around Halloween, I remember one year, my friend Doug, it was his turn to speak. Now, Doug is a great guy. I love Doug. He, we still are in contact today. But, but Doug didn't really study. You could tell. He got his concordance, and it was Halloween time, so we looked at a lot of verses about witches and stuff, because that would probably work. You know, all the students are into witches, so that would work. So we, but he, he just got the references, and we all sat down around the circle, and we had our Bibles, and he'd say, turn to this verse, and we'd turn to this verse, and he'd read it. He'd say, this means that we shouldn't um, be into witchcraft. Okay, good. He says, now look at this verse, and we'd look at that verse, and he'd say, this means we shouldn't go to seances. We'd say, well, okay, fine. And then he got another verse, he said, this verse, Exodus 22, 18. Good old King James, because we lived in the King James. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And he read that and he says, you could tell he hadn't looked at it before. <laughs> okay, we're all looking at him. Okay, explain this one there, you know, mighty grand poobah. And he says, okay, uh, this means, and he's perfectly serious. He's just trying to figure this out. This means, if you know of any witches, you, you should kill them. Okay, let's move on to the next verse. Well, we weren't into application, which probably worked well for us at this point in history. But it poses a good question, doesn't it? What do you do with this verse? And if this was the only verse kind of like this in the Old Testament, it would not be a problem. But frankly, there's a bunch of them like this. And the world loves this. The world uses these texts to mock Bible-believing Christians on a regular basis. You can find gazillions of web pages mocking people who believe in the Bible. Uh, for example, the big thing out, of course, today uh, is the homosexuality issue. And you'll hear this. They'll say, oh, you Christians love your Bible that says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And you quote to us from Leviticus, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Oh, you Christians love these verses, don't you? You prejudiced bigots, right? But in that same context, Christians, you're forgetting a lot of other verses that I think you're just, you're just choosing, picking and choosing what you like and what you don't like, things that you don't live by, for example. 
Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven from two kinds of materials. Tell me, Christians, are you wearing clothing woven from two kinds of material? Oh, you're not interested in obeying this one. This one's not for today, but the other one is, right? Oh, I understand. How about do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard? Inference is if you're a male, you've got a beard. Oh, let's see, man, you've got a beard. No, you don't have one. You're not interested in applying this one, are you? You just want to yell at other people. How about Deuteronomy? Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that have fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat, for it is unclean. Let's talk about your lobster, and your shrimp, and your crab, and your catfish. Oh, you like to pick and choose what verses you like, what verses condemn other people, but you yourself let it go. What do you do with that? Sometimes you hear those arguments, you kind of like... I, I, I don't know what, I, I guess. Do I do that? I says it right, I guess. It's, it's very important as we seek how we do handle this, how the, the Old Testament impacts the Christian, what the, the New Testament Christian's relationship is with the Old Testament. This is a huge deal. We're going to try to be um, quick but clear with it this morning. And so really uh, focus, don't take individual sentences, what I might say, out of context, but take the whole morning together. As we think about the law, as the New Testament authors talk about the law, they're referring to different things, actually, but most of them, it comes, if you take it all and put it all together, what they're referring to are these 600 laws that are found usually between Exodus 20 and the end of Deuteronomy. That's uh, Sometimes the word law, they're referring to Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's, it's the portion of scripture that's called the Pentateuch or the law. That's what they refer to it as, the law. Now, history, real quick. Remember, there was a day when God went and started knocking on Abraham's door. Abraham did not initiate. God initiated. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I want you to leave and go to what was, we know today as Palestine and hang out. And so Abraham does. Abraham's great grandson, Joseph, comes on the scene. And Joseph goes down to Egypt. Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. It's a wild story. Uh, But then there's a drought that hits the whole place. And his family back in Palestine, there's only like 70 of them at this point, but they're in danger of dying. And God has already promised to Abraham that through his seed, the whole world will be blessed. Jesus is going to come through him. So Joseph, I don't know if he knows about the Jesus part, but he's got to protect his family. So he brings them down to Egypt. And they hang out in the Delta River area. And they're in charge of Pharaoh's flocks and they are treated like kings and queens because their relative is the prime minister of Egypt. Life is good. And they are multiplying like rabbits when they're down there. Things are flying. Well, Joseph dies. And the Pharaoh he works for dies. And a new dynasty comes on the throne. And they're looking at these Hebrews. They're in their land. It's a horde. And they're going, man, if these guys have a revolt, we are dead. So they oppress them. They own the spears, and so they enslave them. Uh, Moses, a couple hundred years later, several hundred years later, Moses comes on the scene. Ten plagues later, Israel is out, and they go and they stop off at Mount Sinai. Two million strong. God shows up at Mount Sinai, and God cuts a covenant with his people. Now, ancient covenants were something the folk would have been aware of. And in a covenant would be a, a powerful overlord, a, a general, a king of some sort, suzerain of some sort, comes to a vassal. 
someone weaker that he has control and power over and offers the covenant. And the covenant would promise protection and benefits to the vassal. But in return, the vassal had to promise loyalty to the overlord. And in the covenant, there would be a set of stipulations that would list the ways that the overlord would know that the vassal was, was loyal to him. There's all these stipulations that the vassal was required to keep. And if he kept them, the overlord would give him the protection and the benefits and on and on. And sometimes at the bottom of the covenant, consequences are listed of what will happen to you, vassal, if in fact you break any of these stipulations. Now, when God cuts a covenant with Israel at Sinai, he follows this pattern perfectly. The, the people would have understood. Now, this, this is so important to understand the prophets because with the, where the prophets were coming at is they realized that this covenant was set and Israel was breaking the stipulations. And so the, all the prophets are saying is, ah, you guys are breaking the stipulations. Don't you understand? We're in a contract with God. And if you break your part, this is what it says he's going to do. So cut it out. This is what, that's basically all what the prophets are saying. So you don't have to read them. You got it all down. Um, so, so this is called sometimes the Mosaic Covenant. It includes uh, a temple tabernacle, includes the dietary laws, all kinds of, of laws, 600 plus of them. Then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus says, you know what? In fulfillment of prophecy, it's time for me to cut a new covenant. Remember the Last Supper? This cup is the new covenant of my blood. He says, the old covenant... It's done. If you are a New Testament, word testament just means covenant. If you are a New Covenant believer, you're not under the Old Covenant. You're not under the Old Covenant stipulations. Problem is, when you're a New Covenant believer and you're trying to live under the Old Covenant stipulations, that's, that's part of the, the issue. We find this in, in Mark chapter 7. Jesus setting it aside. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd, left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And saying this... Jesus declared, all food's clean. Jesus just set aside a ton of rules under the, the old covenant. He put them all aside. In, in Acts chapter 15, this is, you can imagine, folk who've lived under the old covenant their whole life, their dad did, and their great-granddad, and God, and Moses, and, and suddenly they know that Jesus cut a new covenant. But it's awful hard to leave the old one. And so Gentiles started coming in to the church. And they were thinking, oh, you Gentiles, we need to make you live under the old covenant stipulations. And so they got together to discuss this. And since the apostles and elders meant to consider this question, what do we do with this? And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? It's difficult to live those 600 rules. No, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved, just as they are. One fell swoop. 
They decide. They recognize. Old covenant's done. It's a new day. If you are a new testament, new covenant believer, you are not under the old covenant. You're not under its stipulations. You say, well, I guess it's easy enough. We'll just wipe out the Old Testament. Well, not that easy. But it's really, this, this is akin, okay, when people start saying, you need to be living under the Old Testament regulations and stipulations. It's akin to somebody saying, these Americans, they're so proud of their constitution. They taunt and flaunt their constitution everywhere as it is the, the savior and they are committed to it and they've got their rights because of the constitution. But they don't really believe the constitution. They pick and choose what pieces of it they want to believe. That's what they do. Because if they were really committed to their constitution, they would recognize that the 18th Amendment says this, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. (laughs) That's what your constitution says. But you're not really interested in living by your constitution, so don't start flaunting it around. At which point we should say, that's right. That was, at one point, the rule of the land. That's, that's the, what was the rule. That's how we lived. However, there's a 21st Amendment, isn't there? 21st Amendment says the 18th article of the amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. We do live by our Constitution. But you can't hold me to a section of the Constitution that was, that was written and enforced between 1919 and 33 or whatever it is. Our Constitution today repeals that. Likewise, the New Covenant repealed that, that, that section. And this, this ought not to freak us out too much because we know that there were commands given to Eve, don't eat, that we're not required to keep. There are commands given to Noah, build a boat, that we're not required to keep. There are commands that are for individuals that may not necessarily be for us. And again, so you say, well, easy enough, then I guess we'll wipe out the Old Testament. Okay, my Bible reading in a year is going to be a whole lot easier now because I just, hey, how come we're doing this Old Testament challenge thing? It's it, Because 2 Timothy 3, and you know, I've had different folk over history. I had a gal back in Appleton, very intelligent gal, was arguing strongly, and there's a group of folk who do that the church is bound to nothing other than the letters of the Apostle Paul, because he was the apostle for the Gentiles. It's just Paul. Now, problem with that is the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture, and you've got to notice that word scripture is graphe. It's a very technical word, and it refers to Old Testament writings. It refers to the law. Paul says the law is inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The law is needed that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says, I'm all new covenant, but don't throw away the law. Uh, understanding, we say, well, how do we put these two things together? That can be a bit of a challenge. Well, traditionally, the Old Testament law is divided into three categories. There was the civil laws. When God established uh, Israel at Sinai, he established a literal political nation that was going to have boundaries for land and armies and government. And so there are civil laws in the Old Testament where he is basically letting these guys know how they're to run their government. Who's to be in charge and how you handle social programs and the crimes and punishments and all. There's social law. Well, we are obviously not theocratic national Israel. We are new covenant. It's whole world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Different deal. We're not 
that's not pertains to us today. Then there's ceremonial laws, right? In, in the ancient times, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. Matter of fact, the United States was the ones who started this whole deal because it was never heard of before. I mean, the, 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 the religion and the government were like one in one, whether it was pagan religion or whatever else. And what happens is that, that Israel, of course, they do this in spades. Uh, and so there are a lot of laws that deal with the tabernacle and the temple and an elaborate, elaborate sacrificial system and a priesthood and holidays, holy days. Uh, those are ceremonial laws. Jesus, when he came, said that he fulfilled those. Book of Hebrews lets us know. goes back through all this stuff and says, Jesus filled those things. Jesus doesn't negate that. He just fulfilled it. So those ceremonial laws just don't pertain to us today. New covenant, new day. There are some laws in the Old Testament, though, that fit the third category, and those are the moral laws. Those reflect God's character. It's timeless. God doesn't change. It's, it's, it's true in the past. It's true today, and it'll be true tomorrow. Those are for us today. Now, these moral laws, uh, you might say, well, how do, I, how do I determine exactly which one is moral and which one? Sometimes it's not all that clear, and sometimes it's not. An easy way to understand that, though, is whichever laws are repeated in the New Testament, either directly or inferred, those are for today. Let me give you an example with this as we talk about this issue of homosexuality. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is outlined in the Old Testament. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that's detestable. But, and we can go to several different places here, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. That's homosexual offenders, your, your word might say. If I'm going into a conversation with somebody who's not holding on to the Bible, I don't know if I want to try to get into a big explanation about civil ceremonial moral laws and which ones pertain, which ones don't. I'll usually start with, with the New Testament and at least state it th- this, this route. So, so we, we've got uh, uh, this uh, idea that God's Old Testament, the old stipulations are not for us today. But I've got to make this really clear. Please hear me, please hear me, please hear me. Don't, just, if you're sleeping, just wake up for just a few minutes and go back to sleep. Okay, I've got to make this really clear. And here's the question. Is the Old Testament for us today? Yes, absolutely yes. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament. Is God inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You cannot be as sanctified as you could have been without it. You need it, Paul says. Is it for us today? Say yes, please. Yes, it's for us today. Yes, it is. However, second question, are the commands of the Old Testament for us today? Well, that's yes and no. If the question was, are all the commands for us today? No, they're not. There's the civil, there's the ceremonial. Those are are done away with. Those were for national Israel. New covenant, new day. We don't live by those stipulations. Moral law is. But let me say this, and you've got to get this third point. You've got to get this third point. However, behind every text of Scripture, every, every text of Scripture, there is a principle that is applicable to us today. We're not bound in the legalistic uh, living out of how they lived it out there, but there is a principle that is for us today. Really, really important. We see the Apostle Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, We've got the text up. 
Yeah. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Am I making this up? No. Doesn't the law say the same thing? It's written in the law of Moses. I believe it's Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Paul says, straight up, hey, this is the Mosaic law. And look what he says, though. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? He said, you, you legalistic folk, don't be thinking, well, it's all about my ox. It's got, it goes way beyond that. He says, surely he says this for us, doesn't he? There's a principle here that far exceeds oxen. Yes, it was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Now, this is the way that this, this works. Okay, but notice a couple things, first of all. All right. Can we go back, Linda, a couple of slides? I got ahead of you. It's my, my fault. These guys need a raise. This is go. Uh, I give them fits. What happens often with us is the Bible was written, of course, to other people before it was written to us. There's an ancient world it was written in. And, of course, their application for the principles is lived out in their culture. Their agrarian culture, a non-tech culture, uh, different ways of thinking about a lot of life. They live those things out. What happens to us sometimes is we see how they live this principle out and we say... Not relevant. Not relevant to my life. This one's not relevant either. Not relevant to my life. And we discard the whole thing. Now, they lived out a principle. And what our job is, is we need to figure out what that timeless principle is and then bring it down. How does that apply into my life? And so if we look at what Paul just did in 1 Corinthians 9. Now you can... I got her jumping. You can keep on coming. Next one. What is the timeless principle Paul's talking about here? He straight up says it's not about oxen. It has nothing to do... Here's a principle that you've got to get and live out, Paul says. Principle would be something like this. The worker is worthy of his reward. Now that works for us today when the kid comes to mow your lawn and you know he's desperate and he needs his money so you want to pay him a quarter. Or you're an employer... And you got employees and you're trying to pinch pennies a little bit, but you got to remember this, this principle. Or your kid really has worked hard at, at home and now it's, you might be asking for a benefit or two. It's time to remember. This is a principle that can control our life, how it looks, how we work it out, how we apply it. That's why we say there's one interpretation. This is it. But there's many applications, how I live this principle out. Uh, we see this in our, our tendency to be legalistic with God's word. Next verse. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Okay, so you think, okay, that's, that's easy, easy enough. I would say that's a moral law. We won't get into why I say that. But, okay, but what's the principle there? Might the principle there, you might say, well, I don't know any deaf people, I don't know any blind people, I'm cool, I'm all right. What's the principle here? Is the principle this, that we should honor the handicapped? I mean, is, is there any verse that says if you, if you know of someone with Down syndrome, you can, you can mock them? No there's, no, there's no command against that, so I guess that's cool. No, 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 no. There's a principle here that says if you know somebody who's in a very vulnerable state, you are not to run roughshod over them. You've got a responsibility to honor them. Oh, now, that's a principle that you and I can live with, that we are supposed to live with. Right, next text. 
Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> you don't hear this often, but I can envision somebody saying, you know, I'm, I don't get drunk on wine, man. No, that's wrong. It's a command against you. I don't do that. I use whiskey. I, that's what I get on. I am going a different... I obey that text. You've got to know it. What's the principle here? Are they listing everything that you can possibly intoxicate you? Even things that weren't even invented yet, they don't even know of? Is, this, is that even pro- proper to think that? Is there not a principle that God is saying here to his people? That your heart is pretty deceptive. And when you introduce a substance that unleashes it, all kinds of bad things are going to come out. When you introduce a substance that puts the Holy Spirit down in the back burner and takes him out of the control and allows the evilness of your heart to be in control, we're going in a bad place. So as a believer, don't ever do that. Don't ever do it. Now that's an application. That's a principle that I, I, I'm supposed to be living with. Now this also works both in old and new when there are these, these issues that are just done, obviously, clearly in their culture, that's manifested, the principle was manifested in their culture, again, that I want to wipe out and just kind of forget because it doesn't pertain to me. Um, and therefore, we, we do, and there's a gazillion opportunities to do this in Scripture, but let's, let's look at Deuteronomy. Uh, it says, If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years... In the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. Give to them as the Lord has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an owl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. You might look at this and say, well, okay, this, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not into, there's no slavery issues today. I'm not into slavery. I have no, okay, this has nothing to do with me. That was, I'm glad God did that for them. That's cool. But it's nothing to do for me. Notice a couple things about even the text, though. It's hardly American slavery. It was an, in an era, of course, that ancient world where there were not a lot of social programs that if, in fact, you went bankrupt, you were, you were destitute, you were just in a lot of trouble. I mean, you, survival was the issue. And so often what you could do is sell yourself to your creditor and, and, and pay it off. Basically, I've heard someone say that all of us who work for companies, we're just, well, we are slaves to our company. That's just the way it is. Um, but you work it off. But notice this is interesting. Look at the way God deals with this. Yep, you work off your debt. That's appropriate. But also what the owner's supposed to be doing at this time is, is preparing this guy to leave so that when he walks out the gate after six years, he's got flocks, he's got food, he's able to start off in life. This is actually a good thing in some ways because otherwise they would have been destitute in trouble. After six years of working, they're able to go start their life anew, a second chance. And notice what God says, that the way it's supposed to work is the guy is supposed to love you. You should have treated him so well that he's actually considering himself as part of your family. And he might actually say, I don't want to leave. You guys take care of me. I'm part of this family now. God says that's the way you should treat them. So is this the issue? Uh, yes, the, 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 the external manifestation of this principle is slavery. But what's the principle? Might it be something like God cares for the disenfranchised? Therefore, we should as well. That when we come across somebody, who again, is in a very vulnerable situation, somebody who's really down, 
might it be that our responsibility isn't to say, hey, that's, that's, well, life is hard, stinks to be you. Might it be that we are supposed to embrace and prepare and not just help them out, I mean, prepare them to move on with, with life. Now, that's a principle that's reiterated in the New Testament. That's, that's us. This is what we need to be living out, right? There are several. First Thessalonians has one that we will look at for just a second. Greet all of God's people with holy gifts. What do you do with this? Yeah, I would recommend that you be careful about your literal application unless you get slapped, right, or punched out by a boyfriend or a husband or end up in jail. You've got to be careful about some of this stuff. Um, what we don't want to do is we don't want to jump right away to the modern world and say, well, okay, that's, it's, it's a holy handshake, man. That's what it is. How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? I, I fulfilled it. I'm cool. First, before you get into the holy handshake thing, let's, let's look for the biblical principle. Why do you think God gave this? And by, besides, what does a holy handshake look like? You know, what, what is that different between a secular handshake? And what are we, what's he referring to? Of course, their, their culture, their world, men, he kissed the, the men, greetings. What does a holy kiss look like? A holy handshake. Maybe the principle that God is saying is when you greet other believers, when you come together, you need to communicate love to the other believers. We think, how are you doing, how are you doing, how are you doing, how are you doing? Okay, great, great fellowship. I was, did good in church today, I'm done. What God is saying about our body, when we, we come together, uh, we need to get outside of our issues. So it's, 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 what is love? First Corinthians 13. Uh, it's kindness and it's patience. It's not concerning my own. It's concerning the welfare of another. It's overlooking an offense. And so when we come together... It's not necessarily whether I shook anyone's hand or not. It's an issue of, did I communicate that it's not all about me today? Did I communicate a genuine, sincere concern for them, for that person? And where there was a need and I came across it and I could help, did I help? Did I, was I truly loving or was I pretty much standard selfish me today? Very interesting, especially when you consider that they'll know we are Christians by What? Our love for one another. So he says, Paul says, when you guys come together as a body, love, love, it needs, needs to be there. When we go on a, a quest for biblical principles, it can change the way we live our lives. So here's a great uh, opportunity for, for quiet time for you. Take the book of Deuteronomy. It's law, right? Go through Deuteronomy looking for principles. Saying, here's the prayer, before you get into it, break down, find the literary unit, and say, God, if you will show me a principle from your word today, I'll live it out. It could be scary, right? Who knows what he'll show you? But if you do that, transformation. Books like Deuteronomy come alive for you. There was a, a, a still living a poet, writer, Kathleen Norris, she wrote a book, Amazing Grace. And in her book, she tells of a story of a, of a gentleman that she and her husband came to know. His name was Arlo. And Arlo's story, what he says is that when he and his wife got married, grandfather gave them a very expensive leather-bound Bible, their names on the cover, but he wasn't into the Bible, so he just kind of, thank you, left it in the box and forgot where he put it. 
Well, grandfather kept asking him, have you read that Bible yet? Have you read that Bible yet? Yeah, 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 for, yeah we did. It's wonderful. Well, they, they thought that he was just really after a thank you, so they wrote him this real elaborate thank you note and sent it on. But every time they met him, he kept saying, how's that Bible? How's that Bible? Yeah, yeah, thank you, grandfather. Thank you. Um, they finally got tired of that. They went to see him and sat down with him and said, thank you very much for the Bible. Maybe we didn't communicate it clearly, but we want to now. Thank you. Okay, we're done with that, right? Uh, grandfather kept after him. Well, in time, Arlo pulled it out of the box. He found it. He started looking through this thing. And he noticed right in front of the book of Genesis, there's a $20 bill. So he looked right in the book, front of the book of Exodus. There's a $20 bill. Leviticus, a $20 bill. Before every book in the Bible, over $1,300 in cash in his Bible that he would have never found had he not been looking. You wonder how many uh, treasures are in here that we'll never find because we're not looking. But God's put them here for us. Uh, Treasures that, you know what, we need if our marriage is going to be what it's supposed to be. Treasures that we really need when the prodigal leaves home. Treasures that, that we need when the world hands us a bill like it's tempted to do on a regular basis. And if we don't have the treasures here, we will be bankrupt and not able to pay it. And it will have an impact on our faith, on our emotions, on, on our life. Uh, God's word, the reason why we've done all those rules is not so we can win an argument, not so we can blow someone away, not so we can look through and find what authors are doing this. And The goal is so we can understand God's word, so we can know him, so we can be transformed. Let's please not make this head knowledge stuff that we've acquired because knowledge just puffs up. Uh, when people, when, they, when their lives go south, when the wheels fall off, they're not reaching for People magazine. They're not reaching for a Tom Clancy novel. They're not, not reaching for the TV guide. They're reaching for the Bible. If they're in jail, if they're in a hospital bed, when the prodigal does leave home, when the marriage is on the rocks. This is what they reach for. Because God's word created everything. Uh, God's word gives power when we're weak. God's word gives direction when we're lost. God's word blows away all the superficiality of life and gives us what's, what's true. And so therefore, what, what our job is, is to say it to ourselves when our feet hit the, the carpet in the morning, get out of bed. Uh, we should write it on little stick notes and stick it on the mirror and on the monitor and above the sink to be reminded of it throughout the day. We should be quoting this thing when we're in the shower. We should read it and study it and memorize it and journal about it and ask questions about it and read books by folk who love it. Seek to be transformed by it. Here's the deal. As we do, as we understand God's ways that are not our ways, we will, we will get to a place where we're loving what he loves, where we're hating what he hates. It's just second nature. And the application of it isn't all that, that hard. And when we do, our lives will bring him glory. And then one day when he sees us face to face, he'll be waiting at the gate to say, well done. Not because we did this big thing, but because we knew him through his word.